You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies, Building New Markets for Impact, with your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. I'm your host, Lindsay Smalling, and on this podcast, we feature stories of unlikely allies building new markets for impact. For this episode, I'm really excited to have Aaron Tanaka and Lucas Turner-Owens joining us from the Ujima Project. The story behind this project totally aligns with this Unlikely Allies theme, and I've been excited to watch this project develop over the last few years. I'm really excited for you to hear it directly from these really creative masterminds working in community development, investment, sort of intersecting all of these issues that are present in the SOCAP community and so many conversations around the U.S. and around the world. So let's jump right in and um, I'll start with Aaron. With the big picture, how would you describe the Ujima project to the average person walking down the street? Cool. Um, yeah, well, first of all, I just want to thank you, Lindsay, um, for having us. It's it's really exciting to get to be part of this podcast and um, being able to you know, talk in a different way with our SOCAP community. Um, I was thinking about we were at SOCAP, I think, four years ago at this point, and I had the honor of being on the plenary that Gar Alperwitz was running. And remember kind of asking the question, um, you know, we, we were talking a lot about the, the ways of rethinking terms to making investment capital more accessible and um, more friendly to support the needs of entrepreneurs, but also raise the question on who is getting to make the decisions. And that was, that was an early inquiry for us, but, you know, it's almost four years later, I think, and um, it's great to be able to be here with you to sh- kind of share our progress and updates. So I just want to start there. But um, yeah, in terms of your question, I want to um, quote our director, Ania Evans, who's the director of Ujima Project. Um, you know, she, when people ask her, what it, what, what is it? Her kind of quick response is it's cooperative economics infrastructure for uh, working class communities of color in Boston. And so that's sort of a, a top level tagline. But, you know, if I was kind of talking about and trying to explain the basics of this, um, I think I would just start with the idea that, you know, a lot of us in our communities um, don't feel like particularly, and we're based here in Boston, uh, don't feel like, particularly in working class communities of color, that we have access to capital. But not only is capital is an issue, there's a number of challenges for small businesses to succeed. So, you know, finding access to financing is one thing, but finding markets and and, um, and making sales, the technical assistance needs, sort of the policy infrastructure and all these different things that determine whether a business could be successful or not. So the GEMA project is saying, you know, there's a role for us everyday folks to actually be invested in our own communities and help our local economies thrive. So practically what that means for us is Ujima Project is a membership-based organization. Uh, we have about 400 members. And we have two classes of members. One is what we call solidarity members who are people who don't necessarily live in the communities that we're focused in but really want to support this project. Uh, and so those folks are uh, allies and don't necessarily have a vote. Uh, and then we have our sort of general membership, who are people who live in Boston, um, identify uh, as having connections or rooted or, or being working class people of color. And really what we ask people is, what are the businesses and the needs of our communities that we want to help uh, invest in and grow? And so practically what that means for us is we have ongoing community meetings and assemblies, we call them. 
And it's a place where everyday folks can get together to engage with each other to really create a plan for the economic development in our communities. And so we've been doing this for the last uh, year and a half. And uh, last year, we had five assemblies and engaged over 550 people across our neighborhoods to actually be involved in building an investment plan. And and from there, um, once we have a plan, which includes the companies in our own communities that we love, that we want to support, but also identify some of the gaps, um, then we are thinking and working towards um, actually investing to fill those needs. So practically, uh, we talk about Ujima. Uh, one of the major components of our organization is actually um, creating a community-controlled investment vehicle. So what that means is that it allows for non-accredited investors in our own communities um, to invest at, the, at $50 and up, but also invites um, institutional investors and accredited investors uh, to be part of our, our capital stack. And I think what's kind of unique and most exciting, or one of the things that's most exciting about Ujima is that whether you are an investor at $50 or you're an investor at $50,000, everyone has an equal vote in deciding where we want to put that money. And, and that's really important for us because we actually believe that everyday people in our own communities, particularly when you're doing place-based impact investing, um, actually have a lot of knowledge that hasn't been tapped. And so at a baseline, what we're encouraging and offering is an infrastructure that allows for folks to um, not only invest and pull our money together, but collectively decide how we want to use it. Um, but I do want to actually add a few other elements to this because, uh, you know, not only, as I said earlier, like it's one thing to get financing to a business, but that's, that's in some ways, as you know, just like the beginning of the, of the struggle. It's not easy to run meaningful social enterprises and communities, especially when you're competing against the Amazons and Walmarts of the world. So for us, we also invite our membership to really activate the other assets that we have. So that could mean, where do you actually shop? Like, where are we spending our dollars? So can we actually think about aligning our collective consumer spending to also be directed towards those same businesses that we're investing in, for example. Um, we also leverage our political power um, to engage with the city and with larger um, organizations like hospitals and universities that we call anchor institutions to ask them to direct their procurement spending towards our own local ecosystem. Um, and then we also have a whole network of partners across our city. We're really fortunate to have um, great technical assistance providers in the small business sector and we are forming these partnerships to make sure that the companies that are in our portfolio um, that are being selected and uplifted by our communities are getting all the different resources um, um, to make sure that they're able to do the business that, that they want to do and do it in a, in a way that um, really fulfills their potential as entrepreneurs. And so, um, you know, Jima is a fairly complex ecosystem, and, and I think that's an important way of describing it, that it's not just one single solution. It's not just about finance. It's not just about uh, making markets. But it's actually about coming together as a community and identifying our collective assets and, and using all of our strengths um, to make sure that this whole vision for the community can actually be actualized and, and enabling people to, to really like live into the future that we want to build. And so whether that's where you spend again or where we invest and where we keep our money um, or what we're advocating for, Ujima is trying to create a uh, system and an organization and an ecosystem that allows us to fulfill those goals. And Aaron, I think your background in this is really important for people to know because the way you just described some of those things in terms like accredited or non-accredited and how a deal is structured and voting and all of that is kind of this 
finance speak, but that's not necessarily the world that you come from or where this where this idea sort of sprung from. So can you talk a little bit about about you not being sort of natively a finance person? Yeah. Um, so I come out of a community organizing background. So for um, the first kind of eight years of my professional life, I was the executive director of a, a small nonprofit called the Boston Workers Alliance. And we were organizing people who um, didn't have access to jobs because they had criminal records. They were either formally incarcerated or maybe were charged with something and never even convicted, but were really struggling to find work. And, um, you know, that actually led us into doing worker cooperative business development. And because our members were kind of talking about, you know, it's great that we were able to pass this, um, what's called ban the box policy, which removes barriers to employment. But even then, like people were still having a tough time finding jobs and the jobs they were finding were often with disrespectful, um, kind of extractive employers. So our, our members started asking the question, can we actually build our own companies instead of working so hard in some ways to integrate into a burning building, right? And can we actually build our own institutions? And so I was really following the lead of the members of our community. Um, but as we started doing business development, started to realize just how different of a skill set not only is, is um, you know, business development, but actually on the finance piece. And so for me, uh, a lot of this work kind of emerged from this like observation that there's so much power and potential uh, in actually trying and, and building new alternatives within the private sector. But there was this chasm between the community organizing space that was really focused on structural change and policy strategies and sort of the, the concrete business development work that also needs to happen. And so um, Ujima really emerged. Um, I, I want to give sort of three quick touch points. Um, so one was I, I actually had the opportunity to be part of the city of Boston's first participatory budgeting process, which was a campaign that we actually were advancing at the Boston Workers Alliance. If people don't know what uh, PB is, it's basically a, a way that, and it originated from Brazil and Porto Alegre. Uh, it's a place where everyday people, um, citizens of a, of a municipality, uh, can actually vote on how they want to spend their tax dollars. And so we had this um, cool experiment called Youth Lead the Change, where I was the lead organizer and actually got to engage over a thousand young people in allocating a million dollars out of the city's budget. So that's one piece to hold. Yeah. Um, the other is uh, I had the opportunity after I left, left the Workers Alliance, um, had the great fortune of connecting with Deborah Fries, who is the co-founder of the Boston Impact Initiative. And her and her father were actually building an experiment and really trying to do place-based impact investing in Boston. And they were using some of their own capital to sort of see this experiment. And, and through that process, got to see um, the potential for finance capital in a different way. I started to see how uh, BII was moving investments towards worker ownership, for example, was investing in community land trust, these, these really exciting models of alternative economy um, that still need regular old money. Um, but the, the ways in which they're using this capital was really to create community control and ownership. And so, you know, I started to see how um, the critical role of finance capital would was going to be necessary to figure out if we wanted to actually start building alternatives and, and creating businesses and infrastructure that our communities um, that actually served and benefit our communities. And the last piece was the actual formation for Ujima. So, you know, again, as you mentioned earlier, like I didn't have a, a formal background in finance. Um, I did do uh, a master's in community economic development, but was really more focused on on cooperative structures and, and really didn't have that much background until I got to get into Boston Impact Initiative. And, 
I knew that, you know, um, that, that was going to be true for a lot of the community organizing uh, social justice leaders that I, that I believed um, deserved and would benefit from better understanding and having control over finance in our own community. So one of our important partners, City Life Vida Urbana, which is a really prominent uh, housing justice and tenant organizing group, um, they, in uh, our own organization, the Center for Economic Democracy and the Boston Impact Initiative, um, hosted actually a study group that brought together over 40 community organizers, uh, some people in the investing space and local foundations. And we just started asking the question, what would it look like for us to take the idea of finance capital, but really embed it under the control of the groups that are grounded in communities that uh, honor the leadership of working class people of color who, you know, have been historically exploited um, and haven't been involved in the decisions that relate to our own communities and actually asking ourselves, could we build a new model for investments that really enables these folks to make decisions about our own communities? And so um, that was, I believe, uh, summer of 2014. And uh, it was almost a year-long process to sort of have these conversations and start building a vision for Ojima. And then we were very fortunate to then hire Nia, uh, who was the former executive director at the Boston NAACP, who took on leadership in really building this project. And yeah, over the last couple of years, um, we've been really fortunate to have these important community organizing partners sort of stepping into the stewardship of finance capital. And for me, I've been really fortunate to get to play this kind of translator role between the social justice and um, movement building space and the impact investing in social enterprise. And, and I think Ujima is, is basically our community infrastructure uh, that enables alignment between these two different sectors. Yeah. You're listening to Money and Meaning. For additional content and information about upcoming events, visit socialcapitalmarkets.net. That's really why I say this story just so embodies um, why we continue to raise up unlikely allies, because there's so many different groups and sectors that are approaching the same or similar problems, but they're coming from very different communities and with different approaches. And when there are these examples where someone's able to serve that translator role or create these bridges between, it creates new things. And so this investment fund that you all have created on your website, it's called the nation's first democratic investment fund. Um, this is a really new thing. And Lucas, you have the fun job of, I think fun of being the fund manager. So I'm going to ask you, what does that mean? What is this new investment fund? Why is it the nation's first? What does it mean that it's democratic? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for the question. And I'm really um, lucky to be on and uh, sharing this story. So um, there are really three ways that our fund is democratic, and these three points all differentiate us from other really terrific and impactful community loan funds doing this kind of work around the country. One is that we source our deals from the communities that we aim to invest in, because to Aaron's point, we believe that there's untapped subject matter expertise on what businesses are great in a neighborhood, what businesses are failing, and what businesses are really hurting a neighborhood. So we try to tap into that. And we do that through the neighborhood assemblies that Aaron was mentioning. So just to give a, a little bit more detail to how those assemblies function, we try to make the process of planning, economic development planning, as fun as possible. So we have music and food and games, and we're, we're giving this information on the place we're trying to get to in sort of 
multimedia formats with skits and scenes. We're also um, providing childcare with the hope that we can get folks to come out and really give us that guidance as to how we should be focusing for the next year or two with the fund. And we've been pretty successful at that. We've had about 100 to 200 residents at each of those events where we're asking the question, as I mentioned, what businesses do you love that are here? What businesses do you need? And what businesses do you want to see replaced? Um, so that's the first way that I think we are really bringing democracy into the fund in its, in its structure and its design. The second way is that we are, we're thinking about social and environmental impact metrics a little differently than I think other folks are in this space in that we are just kind of getting out of the way. We're not just saying we have determined that this singular impact metric is the most important thing for residents of Roxbury. What we're doing is we're asking folks to guide us and tell us which social and environmental impact metrics matter most to them. So we got there by presenting a whole range of questions to folks and having them sort of refine our thinking across eight categories with 36 unique questions. And those questions really range from, uh, is the CEO to entry-level employee pay gap greater than five to one? Or what's this business's energy usage or just broadly environmental sustainability? Um, those questions were each voted on and determined by Ujima's voting members. So we, we really use that as our guidance when we're thinking about what businesses the fund should invest in. And we use it as a screen to determine what businesses are eligible for all the supports that Aaron mentioned and then ultimately eligible for investment from the fund. So one last thing I'll say on that point is that we've established an, a business alliance that we are inviting businesses in the neighborhoods in Boston that we're focused on to join. And this, this screen is the first, the first step to them coming into that business alliance, um, where we then to try to connect them to large anchor institutions, to technical assistance, to marketing, to whatever it is they're looking for in addition to capital. And the, I think the third way, which is probably the most radical way that we incorporate democratic decision-making in the Ujima Fund is that our members actually determine what projects the fund will invest in. So in our offering memorandum, we require that a majority of our 250 voting members participate in each vote on each investment opportunity for us to reach a quorum. And then once we've reached a quorum, we require 51% of that majority to be in favor of the deal for us to move forward. So it's, it's those three pieces that I think are really unique. And that's why we're, you know, we're really excited to call ourselves the nation's first democratic investment fund, because in so many ways we're guided by our members. That's great. Yeah. And so that's all sort of around this democratic piece. But um, I meant to ask Aaron earlier, where did the name Ujima come from? What's sort of the core of, of choosing that name? Yeah, well, Ujima uh, is a Swahili word and uh, is one of the Kwanzaa principles. It, it means collective work and responsibility. And when we were talking and thinking about what this project was really about, it was this belief that um, we need to see our neighbors' problems as our own and that we can also collectively solve them together. And so really the intention was, uh, in, in some ways, like I, I hold the, the term solidarity, this value of solidarity as sort of the underlying kind of um, premise of what Ujima is really about. It's that, you know, we, we are all out here facing all kinds of challenges, whether it's poverty or environmental degradation um, across the gamut, all these issues that we work on. But really the only way for us ultimately to solve these is to come together as communities. And so that that was an important piece. And also just to kind of recognize that um, we want to center this work in communities that have experienced historical extraction, the, the communities that have really built the, the wealth that so many investors 
um, are then using now to either do good with or just to accumulate their own wealth. And for us, um, Ujima is, you know, comes out of the American black experience. Uh, Kwanzaa is, a, is an important holiday that we wanted to sort of hold up and, and uplift those principles. And so um, the Ujima Project is a multiracial, multi-class organization, but tries to center black, indigenous and people of color uh, who are in working class communities in Boston. And so, Lucas, how do you take those other values, those values of cooperative responsibility, of solidarity, and how do those get incorporated into this fund, how you're raising money, how you'll invest that money? What does that look like? Yeah, I think, you know, you, you mentioned the point about how we raise the money, which isn't something that I think we've spoken to yet. I think um, the central idea is that an exciting new impact investment vehicle that will drive economic development in a neighborhood where there hasn't been significant investment should be accessible for the residents of that neighborhood where the impact is happening. It, it shouldn't just be a solution that, that parachutes in to save a neighborhood or something that folks find out about after the fact. So. We were committed to that from the beginning. So we built this with a tranche with a minimum investment size of $50 for non-accredited investors in Massachusetts, with the idea being that if, you know, the, the average income in Roxbury, one of the neighborhoods we're working in is, you know, between twenty-eight dollars and $35,000. And on average, most Americans can't have more than $500 in their savings account. So if the minimum investment for an impact investment vehicle is $1,000, that's out of reach for a lot of folks. So for us, it's a $50 contribution that gets you into the fund as an investor. And then it's our hope that you then join us as a member in Ujima to come to all of our events, to vote, to participate in other ways, to contribute your time and your other talents. Um, but we thought it was critical that, you know, working class residents of Boston could also invest in this fund and that it not just be something that accredited investors can, can invest in. So those investments from working class folks sit alongside investments from foundations, high net worth individuals and other accredited and non-accredited investors from other states. And we raise that money by issuing three and seven year notes with varying levels of interest to our investors. So that's, I think, how the, the principles of Ujima show up in the, the way that we raise the fund. And I think there's another interesting point there, and I'll just clarify. So tranches means that like you've set aside a certain amount of that fund that you want to raise and are sort of holding to raise from those $50 um, and up investors. And and that's hard. I mean, that's hard to raise. Um, there's a reason why a lot of these opportunities are only for accredited investors, meaning investors who are very savvy, who have um, available risk capital, who sort of are in those upper echelons. So what have been some of the exciting pieces of, of going into these new areas of investors? But, but I'm curious also some of the challenges. Yeah, sure. I mean, you're you're right on the money. There are some administrative burdens that go along with this approach. We we launched December 12th and we've raised about $500,000 in that time, but we've raised it from about 98 different investors. Um, and a lot of funds wouldn't want to tolerate that administrative burden. It's it's part of why we decided to build this ourselves is that we we were really committed to that, but it presents a challenge if you if you know each of those investors is earning annual interest, they need to be mailed a 1099 INT each year at tax time, and that's a lot of mm -hmm. that's that's a lot of envelopes, that's a lot of stamps. <laughs> so, um, so I mean, th there's a challenge there, but I think what's exciting is that we are proudly framing a reparations-style capital stack as a part of our strategy. We're asking for wealthier investors to stand in solidarity with working-class investors and actually be subordinate to those working-class investors in the capital stack. 
So what I mean by that is that they actually are tolerating a little bit more of the risk um, in their exposure to the fund and its performance. And to my knowledge, that hasn't been done before. And in my opinion, it's just. So I think that's that, that's what's exciting about it. But the challenge is there's a lot of coordination that goes into it. There's a lot of education that goes into it. Um, but I think I think we're uh, we're excited to be charting this this new territory. Yeah, and you've built this other interesting piece in there, which um, you know part of the reasons why there are not as many offerings to non-accredited investors is because they don't presumably have the same risk tolerance. They don't have tons of extra money, so they can't lose speculative money. Um, but you've built this piece around what are the tolerances for risk and returns and, and how do we um, do that in a more equitable way? Can you can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. I think, I mean, you, you summed it up well. I, I think in my opinion, um, if you are making $30,000 a year in Boston and you want to make an investment in something like this, you can't really tolerate to lose a thousand dollars on a investment into a fund like this or any other kind of impact investment vehicle because you know rent is high in Boston and it's a tough city to live in. So I think you know for that reason we wanted to treat working class investors as those that are least risk tolerant, you might say, or just ones that we want to make sure are most protected in the capital stack, and then treat foundations with program-related investments who might consider investing to support or enhance the security of you know another investor by positioning them in a different place in the capital stack. Um, so I think you know there is a lot of different. I think the way I think about it is there's a lot of different types of uh, investors in the impact investing space, and they all have different risk profiles from philanthropic investors who you know expect a negative 100% return but are really just focused on impact to investors seeking market rate returns. And we're trying to balance those different types of investors and position them in accordance to their risk profile in our fund. Yeah. You're listening to Money and Meaning. I'm Lindsay Smalling, and you can find out more about the SOCAP conference, SOCAP 365, and sign up for our newsletter at socialcapitalmarkets.net. A lot of people want to invest in their community, and a lot of times there just aren't the vehicles available for them to do that. And that seems to be really a big piece of the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, are there pieces of this that I haven't asked you about that are like things that excite you about the work that Ujima is doing, the ways that you're sort of breaking new ground? Aaron or Lucas? Yeah, I'd love to jump in for a second. Kind of going back to the question about, you know, in some ways the inefficiencies from a kind of traditional lens of having so many small investors, yeah, the definite administrative burden that exists. Uh, and people often ask us, like, you know, how, how can you do this, like having multiple assemblies and all this work? And there's no doubt that, that it takes uh, time and money. And uh, we should also note that this fund, uh, in terms of the operations, the staffing, is currently philanthropically supported, right? And so in a lot of ways, um, we're we're moving real money that's going to have real impact on communities and, and on businesses. And we're also, it's a demonstration project um, to sort of prove the different uh, untapped benefits that could be derived from this strategy. So just a, a, a couple examples, like one is just, uh, you know, being involved with the Boston Impact Initiative. Uh, a lot of my work was, was sourcing deals uh, and it's, uh, Lucas talked about earlier, what's really interesting about Ujima is that when you have hundreds of people in a, in a community that now see themselves as investors, they're also your eyes on your ground on the ground and, and are sort of at the top of the 
funnel for the investment pipeline. And so one of the questions that we're excited to test is uh, whether we're actually, despite the, the broader administrative uh, requirements to do this strategy, um, in terms of actually generating meaningful pipelines of place-based um, high road investment opportunities, can this distributed network actually save us money and time in the long term um, so that we can find meaningful things to invest in, right? So that that's like an example of how there's a trade-off, but actually one of the biggest pain points for place-based impact investing is just the challenge of finding deal flow. Um, another example is, you know, I think there's a lot of people who, again, want to invest in, in communities, but um, there's this question about whether it's too risky or not. Um, and part of our hope with Ujima is that we don't get caught in the same trap of saying that we want to invest in communities, but actually we're not ultimately willing to do so because of the risk tolerance. But the reality is that we have, you know, uh, investors who want their money back with this, with a very modest return, and we do have to consider risk. Uh, it's very important, not only in the ways in which we're sort of balancing it within the capital stack, but just looking at our investment portfolio itself. So I think one of the exciting, uh, another opportunity here is like, how does the risk profile of investments change when you have hundreds of people again who said they, let's just say they said they wanted a, a grocery store, right? Through the investment planning and assembly process that Lucas described earlier. And then they actually literally voted to put our collective money into this fund. Well, now how, how much more likely are people to go out of their way to actually shop at this business to make sure that it's successful, uh, to organize their friends and family to sort of drive uh, consumer spending in this way? Or, or how much more likely are people then to start thinking about the tax breaks and subsidies, for example, that large corporations get and start asking, why can't we give public benefits uh, for our own businesses? And so, you know, it's not an immediate sort of, um, doesn't translate immediately into the benefits, but part of our theory is that as we actually engage people in these processes, that the social capital going, you know, going to SoCap, like the social capital of communities could actually play a critical de-risking role that allows us to move capital to enterprises that uh, independent, no matter how well-meaning um, uh, place-based investors won't be able to go to because there isn't sort of the wraparound nature of, of what Ujima is actually trying to build. And so, you know, I think, you know, whether this ultimately translates into kind of compensating for the administrative um, costs that it takes to sort of build this program is yet to be seen. But I think it's going to be instructive for, for investors as a whole to think about the other ways that, that we're leveraging the power and the imagination knowledge uh, and relationships and communities that actually enables for capital flow in a way that we all want to, but have had trouble actually executing on. Yeah, I love Lucas flagged the, what businesses do you love? What businesses do you need? What do you want to be replaced? And that seems like such an obvious place to start and really the wisdom of the crowd allowing you to understand where that capital will be best used as directed by the members of that community. And as you said, so many intentions may even result in a grocery store, but if it's in the wrong neighborhood, if it wasn't community supported, it's not going to succeed. And so that involvement at every step of the way, I'm really excited to see how, how it all plays out and, and what those range of investments end up being and the ones that maybe, um, would have seemed too risky to someone on the outside or would have seemed unlikely uh, that end up sort of surfacing from this close involvement with the community. Yeah. Um, so I'd love for, um, you know, there's, there's always, we talk in these theories and designs and 
what it's really about is sort of where this hits the ground. And I think each of us have these stories in our, in our work that really ground us and why we do it and what inspires us. And so I'd love to just wrap up with a story from each of you of something that you think back on or that keeps you sort of going in this. Um, Lucas, maybe you could start. Sure. Yeah. And if if I could say sort of two things, one speak to that and also just quickly build on something Aaron said, I think there's, there's one other piece of this puzzle, which is another member of our, yeah, I think that, there's another member of our community that we're also trying to leverage, which is these large institutions that are right in our backyard. I mean, I've heard anecdotally that the Longwood Medical Area in Boston has the GDP of of a small country. And, you know, with the, the universities in Cambridge that Boston is known for, you know, spend up to a billion dollars a year in, in different areas of their supply chain. Uh, when I think about the businesses that we're lending to, which range from under a million dollars in revenue to up to seven million dollars in revenue, you know, if we provide a business that hasn't been immensely successful with $100,000 in debt, we're not doing them any favors unless we can also expose them to new markets and allow them to grow their revenue, either through the type of creative organizing that Aaron mentioned or through building partnerships with folks in supply chain departments at major hospitals, universities, and faith institutions. And then we can lend into that opportunity, allow that business to grow and make a really significant impact in terms of economic development outcomes. So I think that's that's another piece of, of our community that we want to involve in this process. Um, but to your question, I'm, I'm also from Boston. I, I grew up in Cambridge and lived in Mattapan and Dorchester and Watertown and have seen a lot of different sides of this city. I think what, what motivates me to do this work, though, is a very specific, very early memory when I was a, a kid in Cambridge. Um, across the street from me was an abandoned, empty lot. And uh, my dad used to uh, purchase uh, old homes and flip them. And he would try to buy this lot and they wouldn't sell it. And everyone in the neighborhood wanted something to go there that we could all benefit from on our street. And uh, finally, the the tenant just sort of abandoned this lot and it was empty for years. And I remember one year, someone cut the chain to this lot. We went into it and the entire community came and brought different resources to build this space into a neighborhood playground. So I remember parents bringing house plants. I remember kids bringing uh, targets for water guns. I remember kids bringing, you know, chalk to make like jump rope stations and someone hung a big, a big rope swing on this tree. And, and the memory for me was so meaningful because it, it taught me a couple of different things. One is that, you know, we can have a direct impact on how we shape our immediate community Two, that each of us had a unique resource that was going to really make this space great. And then Three that there there aren't as many rules as as you might think to this to this work that you know if we can show up and build a real asset that we can actually increase the value of the place and that our opinions about what should happen here matter. So what what ended up happening is that that owner came back and realized folks loved this area and then we were able to stay there for for years and use it in that way. So that was the, kind of my first exposure to neighborhood community development. I was maybe six years old or seven. I love that. It reminds me of that um, childhood story about stone soup. She starts with a rock and a pot of water, but says like, if you want some of this stone soup, you have to add something to it. And by the time everyone adds something, it's an amazing, amazing stone soup. Um, Aaron, what's some of the, what are some of the stories that, or a, a story that, that really sticks with you? Yeah, well, uh, I love, I love that story, Lucas. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I actually, I'm actually just thinking of something that happened really recently, um, and it's kind of 
emblematic of how we see this work and the trajectory in the long term. So, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the sort of um, some of the details of the fund structure and some of our hypothesis around um, the risk mitigation strategies and, and all these different pieces. But for us, again, at the end of the day, like what we're really trying to drive at is the belief that people have the ability, uh, the knowledge, the wisdom and, and the right to self-govern and specifically self-governed capital uh, as a community. And so what's interesting is like, you know, we had a, um, our, our first pilot we did uh, a few years ago and it was a small pilot. We raised 20,000 bucks from 175 people over three days and invested, uh, made lend zero, zero percent interest loans through Kiva. Actually, we use a Kiva platform to vote on how we want to split up money between five different um, uh, black and immigrant owned companies. And that was the first time that we actually got in a room, like not only folks who are in the social enterprise and investment space, but people in the grassroots community organizing space. Um, and it was this moment where people started seeing um, the ways in which we can solve each other's problems and we're actually able to uh, leverage the assets we have together to drive a collective vision. So I, I just, this is not a great story, but like just to mention that piece that's sort of driven and, and we built on this idea that, that we can make decisions and that we actually ought to have that right. And so that what's been really interesting is just last week, actually, we, Ujima, a couple months ago, um, helped launch a citywide uh, divest reinvest network that was actually focusing on where the city of Boston's pension funds and our operating budget is being banked and invested in. And we had this amazing moment where um, we had a whole network of people who are working on prison, climate, um, militarization, divestment, um, standing together with the broader sort of um, wealth advisory and SRI community, along with the sort of reinvestment vehicles like Ujima, um, the different sort of community development um, organizations like the Center for Cooperative Development and uh, Solidarity that's creating a network of uh, immigrant women-led worker-owned cooperatives and the Greater Boston Community Land Trust that's helping um, take back land out of the speculative market. And, and so anyway, like, we all were all able to sort of come together and actually uh, calling on the city to really have our investments reflect the broader public will. Right. And, and the kernel of that was, again, this, this small belief that people should have the right to govern our own capital. And with Ujima, you know, we're really working on our own private dollars. Um, but I think what's really amazing is like once you sort of start to make this idea common sense, um, then people start to look at other sources of capital and ask the question, well, why can't we be involved in governing this money itself? And so that sort of kernel has then emerged into this broader network uh, that led to this hearing. And, and actually the mayor um, kind of preempted this hearing by actually making a, a really pretty major announcement that uh, $150 million are going to be from the city's uh, treasury going to be allocated for ESG investing. And then another $100 million is going to be directed for uh, towards community banks and community-based investing, right? And so I guess I, I just share this this little small victory, which is, you know, it's uh, we have between the pension fund and the city treasury, there's probably about $7 billion that we're looking at. And so uh, $250 million within this is still a drop in the bucket. But I think what's exciting for me is like how we start to think about scale. Um, and so Ujima is a model, but the principles behind Ujima around economic self-governance and democracy is getting carried out uh, far beyond our small experiment uh, and is sort of taking place and taking hold 
uh, across the city. And so I'm, I'm just really excited to see where this work takes us um, and to sort of continue to reinforce the belief that uh, we have the right and the ability to make these decisions for self. That's great. Yeah. As you said, it's a demonstration project. And so that's probably really gratifying when it doesn't have to come out of Ujima itself, but that you're seeing that demonstration have an effect outside of the direct work of your organization. Yeah. Thank you both so much. The great stories. This is such a fascinating story of Ujima Project, and um, it's really still being written. So um, I should have spelled Ujima at the beginning uh, so that people can look it up and learn more. U-J-I-M-A. Uh, I don't think there's that many other things on the internet with Ujima. So check it out. There's um, It's a great website. Tons more detail. Congrats to you guys on making it really accessible. You're clearly very um, focused on reaching the average person and making these things that can be jargony uh, very accessible. So I know I'm going to be carrying that value of solidarity with me out of this call. It's such a great sentiment of, you know, all of us are in this together. So thank you both so much for being with us today. And uh, we look forward to future updates. Thanks, Lindsay. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at SoCapMarkets. Thanks for listening.